0: Summertime in Tampa Bay means hitting the white sand beaches or heading for the springs, but the region's once-pristine waterways are under increasing pressure from threats to the environment like toxic runoff, sewage spills and algae blooms. Today we'll get an update on the state of the waterways from WUSF environmental reporter Steve Newborn. First though, a glimmer of hope in the waters of Tampa Bay. Florida's offshore marine habitat is in peril. Populations of fish are dwindling in many places and manatees have been dying in record numbers. The basis for much of this life lies in seagrass just under our boats. Recently, Newborn joined a scientist on a trip into one of the healthiest seagrass meadows in the Gulf of Mexico.
1: We've heard plenty of bad news about Florida's waterways. Algae blooms from Lake Okeechobee spilling into estuaries along the Gulf and Atlantic coasts. Red tide killing untold numbers of fish in Tampa Bay. Coral dying in the Florida Keys. But there is something good to report. Just off the coast of Pasco, Hernando, and Citrus Counties lies one of the largest seagrass beds in the Gulf. Chris Anastasio, a water quality scientist, guns the motor on the small boat and putters into waters the color of a new spring leaf. We go a couple of miles from our boat slip near the Tarpon Springs sponge docks,
2: The historic Anclode Key Lighthouse stands guard in the distance. So we are on the west side of Anclode Key, and this is an area that is consistently mapped as seagrass, and the clarity today is really good. Anastasio, who works for the Southwest Florida Water Management District, stops the boat,
1: surveys the gulf bottom four feet down, and tells an environmental scientist working with him to drop anchor.
2: All right, get ready, Will.
1: A drone loaded with a camera is lowered
2: into the water. Alright, I'm going to stop recording and disengage thrusters. So you can just pull her back in. Six propellers thrust
1: the drone over the sandy bottom, just above the grass. The information is transmitted to a virtual reality headset. What the drone sees is good. The water's clear. Eighty percent of the sandy bottom is covered with seagrass. But Anastasia wants a first-hand look, so on go the flippers and snorkel.
2: Oh yeah, we got lots of grass down there. See a lot of drift algae out here. And the nice thing is it's edible. Makes a great salad. And it's salty. (laughs) Would you like some? He reaches up out of the water and hands me a sample
1: is rather salty, and a little nutty. Anastasio says seagrass is considered the bedrock of the entire marine food chain. He says about 70% of
2: both commercial and recreational fish spawn in these seagrasses. There's about 586,000 acres of seagrass in that part of Florida, which is second only to Florida Bay. It's one of the largest seagrass areas in the world. But it's not just seagrass. What's really unique about that area, it's a mix of seagrass, attached algae, corals, sponges, scalloping. The death of 1,100 manatees over the winter in Indian River Lagoon
1: on the Atlantic shows how crucial it is to keep these waters healthy. An excess of nutrients, much of it from lawn fertilizers swept by rains into the lagoon, created algae blooms that starved the grasses of sunlight needed to survive. That's not the case here, in the Springs Coast region, named for the spring-fed rivers that
2: nourish this brackish ecosystem. Just offshore, actually, of Anklode Key, we saw quite a bit of increase and expansion of our seagrass meadows, which is great news. So Anastasio says part of the water district's message is educating the public about the dangers of too much fertilizer from lawns and septic tanks fueling algae blooms. So it's really important that the public understands what we have and what we could lose. And that's on the minds of the scallopers, recreational boaters and sponge divers who depend on this
1: part of the Gulf remaining as clear and untouched as it can be.
0: And you can read more about Steve's reporting trip and see photos and video from WUSF multimedia reporter Delina Miller on our website, WUSFnews.org. For more on the state of the seagrass meadows and the health of the waterways, Steve Newborn joins me now. Let's start with something that water scientist Chris Anastasiou mentioned at the end of your report. He said, we don't want to become the Indian River Lagoon. Steve, just remind us what's happened in the Indian River Lagoon recently, and the impact that that's had on marine wildlife.
1: Right. So on the uh, the east coast of Florida, uh, the Atlantic, we've had a record number of manatees that have died last year, more than 1,100, which is 12 percent of the entire population of manatees in Florida. You know, these are cuddly animals, one of the you know the symbols of the state, and people get upset when this happens. So this is actually getting a lot of play. But what happened over in the Indian River Lagoon is we've had years of a lot of nutrients, phosphorus, fertilizer washing into the lagoon. This has been happening over several decades, and occasionally we have these mass die-offs. This was the biggest one we've seen yet. The difference from what we've been seeing over there and here is that the Indian River Lagoon is a closed system. There's only a couple of inlets. Uh, There's this huge barrier beach, like a 200-mile barrier beach, separating the lagoon from the Atlantic. And there's only a few little cuts or passes through there, so there's not a lot of flushing. So what gets in there stays in there. And basically what happens is these nutrients fuel algae blooms, and the algae blooms cloud out the sunlight. They prevent sunlight from reaching the seagrasses that grow on the bottom that the manatees need to survive. So this has been an ongoing problem. This is just the worst episode
0: of what's been going on for many years. And by comparison or by contrast, the area you visited, that was a healthy seagrass meadow, so quite different from what we've seen in the Indian River Lagoon.
1: Right, it's it's not as closed in. as It's, it's basically an arm of the Gulf with some barrier islands in between the bays and the Gulf further out. Now this is mm-hmm. part of what's called the, uh, the Nature Coast Aquatic Preserve. This is the second largest offshore preserve in the state, and the first one that has been created in about three decades. It's more than 500,000 acres of seagrass, and it's second only to Florida Bay, which is at the end of the Everglades, as one of the largest seagrass beds in the entire world.
0: Now, the state's also working on a management plan, right, for that massive aquatic preserve. And as you point out, that was only formed in 2020. Can you talk a little bit about how this preserve came into being?
1: Yeah, there are several aquatic preserves off the the Gulf Coast, a little further north off of Cedar Key, and there's actually one off of Pinellas County, too. So this huge area, they call it the Springs Coast because there are so many springs that flow into it. You have uh, the Chassawitska, Wikiwachi, further north the Waukasasa. That's a mouthful, I understand. But um, (laughs) these are relatively pristine rivers that flow into this area. So we've recognized, or at least the state has recognized, the need to protect it from, becoming what happened over in Indian River. So uh, they're working on a um, a management plan. They're asking the public for their input. And um, it should be completed, I believe, next year. And basically what they're trying to do is create a balance between human uses, such as recreational, commercial fisheries, and, you know, nature. Um, There are a lot Mm -hmm. of endangered species like manatees, sea turtles in this area. And they're trying to come up with a balance that really helps it sustain itself. We can use it for fishing, scalloping, sponging, right? Tarpon Springs is right there with the famous sponge docks. And there are plans still afoot to build more developments near that area that are right on the water. So they're trying to strike a balance here between that and what we have right now in the Gulf.
0: So it sounds like what's going on in the Gulf is really closely tied to what happens in the springs and the, the rivers that feed into it. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, You know, there are problems in the springs, too. This is another big problem with water in Florida. If if anybody's been to one of our gorgeous springs lately, you've seen a ton of algae in there. Mm -hmm. I I was just at um, Chasowiczka, which is on the border between Pasco and Hernando counties, and there are floating mats of this algae everywhere, where it didn't used to be this way. You talked to some of the old-timers there, and the water was crystal clear, now, you, the only place you don't see the algae is right at the springs. They call it Seven Sisters Springs. And there's so much pressure coming out of the aquifer from underneath that it, it kind of floats the algae away. But this is a big problem everywhere. And the problem is tied to septic tanks, uh, mm. too many nutrients flowing into the aquifer, which is all... It's like Swiss cheese down there. It's, they call it karst, the limestone underneath. And the water just flows freely between what's at the bottom end of your septic tank and the springs, you know, with a little bit of a journey in between. So there needs to be something done about the, just the, the millions of septic tanks in the state if anything's going to get better.
0: You're listening to Florida Matters. We're talking about Tampa Bay's waterways with WUSF environmental reporter Steve Newborn. The conversation continues in just a moment. Welcome back to Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. We're talking with WUSF environmental reporter Steve Newborn. Recently, he took a trip to one of the healthiest seagrass meadows in the Gulf of Mexico, just off the coast of Tarpon Springs. But the waterways around Tampa Bay face a range of environmental threats, from runoff to sewage spills and nutrient pollution that spurs the growth of toxic algae. So basically, the threats are all land born right? They're, they're coming from septic tanks, they're from runoff from people's backyards. Is there anything else that's threatening this particular area of seagrass and other marine life?
1: Well, of course, we have red tide. It is natural. That it is natural. It's been noticed in Florida waters since the Spanish were exploring here, but in much smaller quantities, never in this kind of quantity we have. The theory is that all the nitrogen and pollutants we're pouring into the Gulf feeds the red tide, there's study, some studies saying uh, that it's still not conclusive evidence. But um, when this happens, uh, we saw it last year, really, really bad. Um, it killed millions of fish in Tampa Bay. I went down to the uh, the dock in, in downtown St. Petersburg last year when this happened, and I mean, it smelled like a dead fish factory. There were mm. fish floating belly up everywhere. Even hermit crabs, which, you know, are these ancient-looking creatures which have been around for millions of years, just floating belly up in there. And it just shut down the entire fishing industry, shut down the recreational fishing, shut down all the tour guides, so hotels even at the beach. So it has a much larger impact than just on the marine life out there.
0: One of the things I really liked about the story you reported where you took that tour of the seagrass meadow is the snack you had right in the middle of it right the uh scientists you were talking to sort of popped out and said here's some uh here's something you can eat right out of the ocean just talk a little bit about <laughs> that because that is kind of unusual right you're not normally going to be reporting on an environmental story and say i'll have some of that
1: yeah that was that was really nice of him to do, the, do that on tape wasn't it it's called drift algae i've seen it forever i didn't know you can eat it and you know i took a little bite of it it's pretty tasty actually um you, know, you spread it on your salad if you're so inclined. you know, people eat mm-hmm. seaweed, seaweed salad. It's kind of in that in that ilk, but it just goes to show you the uh, you know the potential benefits of what's what's out there. It could be you know a food source in the future, who knows
0: yeah and and so you know this is a to to your point. this is a good news environmental story, and oftentimes you're reporting on thing more problems in the environment. but what are people doing right? Like what are stakeholders doing right in this situation? And are there some lessons that can be applied to other environmental issues that you cover?
1: Right. So this, we're fortunate in having this, this aquatic preserve that's in the making right off of our coastline. It's, it's relatively pristine. There isn't a lot of development out there. I mean, they call it the nature coast uh, for, for good reason, uh, going um, north from Hernando up to the Big Bend area. And um, it's, it's actually a cautionary tale For what could happen to other places, because the Indian River Lagoon was like this at one point in time. Mm -hmm. It was very pristine, and you know we have you know how many million people coming into Florida every year, and everybody everybody wants to live on the coast. Everybody wants to have a boat slip. uh, Everybody wants to have a view of the water, and not everybody has a hook up to a water treatment plant. They have a lot of septic tanks, boats, pollution, runoff. So you know we need to be aware that this could happen here as well, and um, I really don't see much happening in Tallahassee to uh, to stem that problem in the future.
0: Last year, Steve, you reported pretty extensively on the Piney Point spill and the impact on waterways. Has that spill been completely cleared up and what do we know about the long-term impacts on Tampa Bay?
1: I don't think scientists really know if it's completely cleared up. I, I, I bet it isn't. I mean, there were 215 million gallons of wastewater flowed into Tampa Bay. And this is from a, uh, a gypsum stack. It's a place where they store wastewater from the production of f- phosphate fertilizer. Mm-hmm. This is um, right in Manatee County by, uh, by the Hillsborough County line. And what we saw there was in the wake of the the spill... Maybe a month or two at the most later, there was a huge outbreak of of algae that was discovered in the bay. Um, A study in the, the Marine Pollution Bulletin showed that about 180 tons, tons of nitrogen poured into the bay from the leak. I mean, that's as much as they get an entire year, and they got it in the span of several weeks. Now, what it did was it fueled the growth of an algae called cyanobacteria. These are these floating mats. They're little green mats that, you know, look really awful in the water. And the scientist, um, Marcus Beck was his name, from the Tampa Bay Estuary Program. Let's give him the credit for this. Showed that this essentially fed the red tide when it ended, entered Tampa Bay from the Gulf just a couple of weeks later. And as we saw, this was the worst fish kill ever in the in, in Tampa Bay, at least in recent memory. Millions and millions of fish and marine life died. Mm-hmm. So there is a definite Connection, you know, there's no smoking gun, but there is definitely a connection there.
0: My understanding is that the spill last year was not the first time that Piney Point had leaked. So, Steve, what are you hearing about whether there's still a, a danger of of this particular site leaking again, or is you know is there a risk of future toxic spills from Piney Point?
1: Yeah, this is the spill. This was definitely not the first spill. Uh, there there have been major major spills, and just a little history. Uh, The the stack was just about emptied in uh, mid about 2015 and the nearby Port Manatee decided to have a dredging project to increase the depth of the the slips there for their docks and they thought, well, where's a better place to put all this stuff than that big gyp stack hulking right there on the the horizon? So they refilled the stack with the seawater and all the dredge stuff. And it was, almost, it was almost empty before this. So, and the state allowed this, DEP allowed this, the county allowed it, Manatee County. So, there's a lot of people at fault here. So, what we have now is there is still about 250 million gallons. That's more than the amount that's spilled into Tampa Bay that are in the stack. And it's, um, according to the latest report from DEP, the current storage capacity for any more rainfall is 32 inches. Just for comparison's sake, we've received more than that since the beginning, since this time last year, 46 inches in that time span. So, And we're entering the hurricane season, right? Yeah, there are big storms on the horizon, and there is a definite fear that this could happen again.
0: And you mentioned earlier that there isn't a whole lot of movement in Tallahassee to, to safeguard against this kind of thing, legislatively at least.
1: Right. So, you know, for... For blue-green algae, which is the stuff that we've been seeing coming out of Lake Okeechobee, there are plans afoot to build reservoirs in the Everglades to prevent this massive discharge that we saw went into the, uh, the Caloosahatchee River, which goes to Fort Myers and the Gulf, and the St. Lucie River, which goes to the East Coast. But there has been very little movement to address the cause of why this is happening to begin with. You know, the governor appointed a blue-green algae task force full of scientists. They come out with this big report, and environmentalists are saying it's nothing but a show. One task force member told, a, um, told one of the newspapers that their work has been ignored year after year. For instance, it didn't require farmers. You know, agriculture is one of the biggest contributors to the, the spread of nutrients that fuel the blue-green algae. Uh, the bill didn't require farmers to monitor or reduce the pollution running off their land at all. It's a mm-hmm. voluntary program, and so far no one, no rancher, no farmer has been sanctioned for any kind of water quality violation. So what the enviros are saying is you know, we're dealing with symptoms of, of what's gone wrong without addressing the cause, which means it's probably going to happen again and again, maybe mm-hmm. even this summer.
0: Well, Steve Newborn covers the environment for WUSF. Steve, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Matthew. And that's Florida Matters for this week. You can find us online at WUSFnews.org or via Facebook or Twitter. Search for Florida Matters. Denora Prevost is our producer. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.